Hello again and welcome to the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. I'm your host, Jez Field. Now, in today's episode, I caught up with my good friend, Andrew Wilson, to talk about cultural change, online church, atheism and sexuality. And as ever, Andrew had some hugely insightful things to say that uh, really helped me personally get a lot of clarity on some things. Andrew is a well-known Bible teacher and popular conference speaker, as well as the author of several books, including If God Then What, Incomparable, which features studies into the character of God, and Spirit and sacrament that looks at how we can make use of and enjoy all of God's gifts to the church, the charismatic and the traditional ones. Andrew is the teaching pastor at King's Church London and is a training course director for the Catalyst family of churches. If you like conversations about culture and Christianity, then I think you're really going to enjoy what Andrew has to say. And if you do enjoy it, don't forget to like, subscribe and share. But for now, let's take a deep dive into my conversation with Andrew Wilson. Enjoy. Andrew, it's great to see you. Hello. Hi, Jez. Good to see you. Um, excellent. Well, Andrew, first question before we get into that is, um, how are you, obviously? And um, <laughs> I do really care about your well-being. Really well, haven't you? <laughs> um, but more importantly, <laughs> what have you learned? Give me one thing that you've learned either about yourself or leadership in the past six months. Uh, I think the last six months have been a colossal bummer uh, in and I think I have realized probably some things about the importance, the thing, the things about the importance of the church. And I think what I've been surprised by at times is how my, how the things I have missed from the gathered church have evolved over the last six months. So I probably thought that there would be, I thought that there'd be certain things that you'd miss throughout the entire process that, that might be just, and you're like, I'm desperate to get back to that, like sharing communion with people. And as it's gone on, I've realized that that's ebbed and flowed. That's, at times it's been that. It's, at times it's been singing. At times it's been a context for public preaching or hearing of the words. Uh, and, it, it's been, and sometimes it's just missing friends. And it's, it's very strange. I think that ebb and flow of the loss of the church, but why the loss of the church is painful, has been really surprising to me. And I think I'm, I'm coping much better now than I was in the summer with that loss. But I found the whole thing, I mean, everyone has, obviously, very weird. But it's, it's weird the ways in which it's been weird for me. Um, so, yeah, that's been a surprise. I, I love that. I want to stay with that before we move on, because <laughs> I, you've shared things about this before with me that I've, I found deeply challenging. Because I, I do hear a lot of people just celebrating, of course, the advent of um, online church. And it's, it's in its heyday now. We've all realised that we were wrong to insist on um, in-person church. And now... Look at this. We can do online church and it's just... Bodies? Exactly. Who needs them? <laughs> Gnosticism, rah, rah, rah. All words to that effect. <laughs> exactly. Um, so what are, yeah, what are your, some of your concerns with online church? Or the or what are the, some of the things you think we're learning as a church about the importance of embodiment? Yeah, I mean, I think probably my concern about online church is I don't think it really exists, but you, you know very well. But um, I think... I mean, it's it's obviously it's better than nothing, isn't it? I, I think that the nice thing about it is that it means that if you're in a situation like this, or if in normal quote normal times you are too um, too unwell or too elderly or frail or whatever to be able to leave the home, then you can still feel a sense of connection to what's going on in the gathered church. I think that's that's great, but I think as soon as it becomes a, a substitute, I have no concern if people know this is the analogy I always use is this is like a, a you know an online church is like an online marriage. Like, I think, of course, if, you know, you were away from Amy for nine months on the high seas in a battleship somewhere in the South Atlantic because you're in the net, then, OK, fair enough. Um, you can remain married and it's not that you can't Skype or Zoom or whatever it was. And it's not like you would your marriage suddenly ceases to exist. But anybody who thought that that was somehow a, a replacement or as you I mean, I, I heard some a, a, a Christian leader you would have heard of a lot of our listeners would have heard of talking about how the thing that they ran was just doing so much better in the online era because people were more real and people and i was thinking i don't know it may or may not that may or may not be what you you may truly believe that i don't know but i'm just i'm very concerned if in the in the name of gathering a larger number of people through this sort of platform in this kind of world that you end up 
celebrating it rather than mourning it and saying this is a this is a tragedy like an online marriage is a tragedy it, it might be needed for a certain time because of awful things happening you might be at war you know my grandfather and my grandmother wrote to each other for three and a half years but they didn't see each other because of being in a pow camp you know so these things do happen but i i think to say that then when you get back together again you go oh no actually this is all it's just as good you can stay at home i think this is a disaster. Now, I don't think many people are going to do that, but I'm always optimistic about that sort of thing, and I might be wrong. Um, my hope is that when people feel that, that they are safe and that the kinds of meetings we're having are close enough approximations to what they're used to, they will come back. I think we are at the moment in an odd twilight period, though, where the church meetings, as and when people do attend them, are so weird and different and I the one first one I went to I found quite upsetting actually I was just so weirded out by everyone in masks no singing that I sort of thought oh I don't want to go back to that and I think a lot of people are experiencing something like that which may mean it takes quite a while for the numbers to return when when things are, are eventually lifted but I'd certainly think anything that treats online as a substitute for real church is yeah is a very bad idea yeah you uh, you said something to me a few months ago that really stuck with me that we believe what we do uh, it's about the importance of habit forming um explain exp- so that was part of why you were concerned that churches are closed and there didn't seem to be at the time that we were talking much energy or enthusiasm from the point of pastors to regather because they were thinking oh this is good we're getting uh, you know sunday rests and we're all online and that's fine and you were saying no that i'm concerned for the health of the church because we believe what we do and so there's a concern that people will just stop believing uh, would you go so far as to say that, or what, what did you mean? Yeah, exactly well, by I, th- that I think I think it's true that I think basically people go to church because they believe in God, but they also believe in God because they go to church. There's, there's a you know sociologists talk about plausibility structures, and the, and the existence of the church is a, a plausibility structure, namely something that reinforces the plausibility of the thing that you believe. And it's, of course, it's not only Christians who do that. Secular people have it. Everybody has it. Every religious or non-religious community has it. And in many ways, watching Netflix is a plausibility structure for secular materialism. And, you know, we are always involved in basically in bodily and mental and sometimes even spiritual practices, the purpose of which is partly to reinforce the narrative about the world that we believe. And if you live in, as we do, in a society which is very good at doing that from a materialist or a secular or a liberal or progressive standpoint but you remove the plausibility structure that it reinforces christian faith which is the lo- the primary one of which is the local church then you end up making christians weaker and i think that's what's happened i think christians are i think you know some of them some of us will express it like i'm i'm tired or i'm just more and people of course we all put it down to lockdown and coronavirus which is absolutely right but i think what we'll find is that the one of the things that happens is when people get out of the habit of being part of the gathered church, they are at risk of getting too used to it and of continuing to be out of the habit of it once the church does regather again. Now, as I've just said, I'm not that concerned about that being a mass thing, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are a whole bunch of people, particularly those with perhaps less spiritual maturity for whom that is a huge threat. And I heard in a totally different context, a, a political commentator a few months back saying that lockdown was really living off your fat reserves that the reason why home working like you know, i mean you're now speaking from inside your shed in your garden the reason why homework can work he was saying and even in large offices is because we're living off our fat reserves of relational capital we built up with people through personal interaction but that you'd make a withdrawal each day of lockdown or each day of this kind of system and there comes a day where you just don't have it new people have been added you've never physically met them and I think we'll find the same thing can be true for the church, that you might feel like, oh, I'm living off the gain of being part of a church, yet I don't have to go. Yay, you know, win-win. And then you think, no, no, because each of those things, you are you are taking out both your investment in others and their investment in you. And the point comes where you just feel apathetic and a sort of torpor sets in and you don't really want to participate anymore and you don't really know why. And I think that is a genuine risk, particularly for people who are very tired. So, yeah, I... I that's just that's a more of an observation i'm not paranoid about it i don't think but i do think it's a thing no but i think it's a helpful observation of how belief works and it's that's to say nothing of truthfulness of a thing but you're absolutely right it's the 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 way in which a plausibility believability of something is reinforced and so that's where i really want to come on to is 
is how, I mean, there've been massive social changes in the last couple of decades, obviously. Um, and the, the pandemic has, has brought some of those to light where people have had more time at home mm-hmm. and issues that were previously going on and bubbling away in the background have burst to the surface and have generated a lot of um, attention. I'd just like to get a kind of snapshot from you of some of the major social changes or political changes that you think have taken place over the last few decades that are having a big impact on the church and on Christians in general. Is that too big a question? It's a pretty large question. I mean, I'll, I'll, have, a, I'll have a go, but I don't quite know. <laughs> Tell me about all the things that have changed in the last 50 years and how they have fed the church and what we should do about them. Two minutes, go. Um, step back for a second. What happens when we consider social change? Uh, this is something that I think goes back originally to the historian Fernand Braudel. He says what happens is social change takes place at three levels. And it's like a, you think about a giant ocean of, of social change. What you see is the waves on the surface. You see the, like I did this morning, very windy day, waves breaking. That looks to you, that's all you can see. And that looks like the most interesting, newsworthy bit. That is, that's presidential elections. That's political decisions. It's even coronavirus outbreaks in certain ways. It, it's it's sort of the visible surface level of change. Underneath that, you have things like tides. You have actually deeper forces, which you can't see, but you can see the effects of them if you stick around for six or 12 hours. You can say, oh, the sea's moving in and the sea's moving out. But they're not visible, but you know that those things are perhaps more important. And those are those might be things like technological developments are of that nature and larger social movements. The sexual revolution would be, in the last 50 years, would probably be the most obvious one of those, where the relationships between men and women, the number of women in the workplace, um, gay rights, transgender rights, many, many things like that, which have come out of it, uh, divorce, abortion, many, many you know, factors like that, which is quite a large, so you can see it, and it's taking place under the surface, but you can, you can see the effects. And then the third level is the sort of deep ocean currents, like the Gulf Stream, things which over thousands of years have just been flowing the same sort of way but they make northern scotland quite a lot warmer in winter than atlantic canada even though scotland is hundreds of miles to the north of atlantic canada because there's this huge deep flow within the ocean that you can't see and you would never you almost have to be taught told that it's there otherwise you wouldn't quite believe it um but those and those deep level social changes about the way in which ordinary people live their lives and i think if you analyze culture that way you'd say oh, there's a lot of things going on in the present there's COVID, there's Trump, there's riots, there's, you know, obviously a lot of in the race conversations come to the surface in the last six months, appropriately so, but that's it. So there are a lot of things like that which you'd point to. Then the, the sort of the tidal middle level you've got, and you're thinking about things like probably technological developments and the sexual revolution, which I, the sexual revolution probably will have more long-lasting impact, actually. It's more of a third, the, the sort of lowest tier. And the lowest tier, you'd say, what are the most significant developments of the last 100 or 200 years and it would be things like people don't work on the land anymore um most people live most people are increasingly living in cities population is gradually europe was a fifth of the world's population 100 years ago now it's a tiny fraction of that africa is going to be a third of the world's population within 50 years all those sorts of trends and very few people in the world are farmers and a tiny percentage of people create enough food for everyone else and so most of us work in offices and we are living longer those sorts of trends which are much deeper. Although you, if you have, if you're told them, you go, oh yeah, but they're not the things you notice day to day in the news. And I think if you think that sort of threefold triage, the reason I laugh is partly because you could answer that question at any one of those levels, couldn't you? I think the lowest one is the most is always the most significant. I think the kinds of lives that ordinary people are leading now, relative to a hundred years ago, is ultimately pastorally a more significant question to wrestle with. But I think in the last, if you just take the last twenty years, yeah, I think the key development the internet and the mobile technology are probably going to be the things i would guess from now that you will look back on in 50 years time and say that was the key development of the first 20 years of the 20th 21st century just like the key development of the previous 30 or 40 years would have been the sexual revolution and its consequences so that's probably the, mm. the digital world i expect mm. would be the biggest one that's really helpful thank you and so you did do it see in two minutes a short history of everything with andrew <laughs> wilson well done <laughs> well as a as a, someone who who trains emerging leaders and is a pastor and a teacher where are some of the areas in church life and in conversations with christians that you see um 
the waves of the the surface of things really having an impact on the people that you're teaching and training so where are some of the things that you've noticed things have changed and the things that you're having to talk more about or the confidence levels of the christians that you're engaging with where are they finding things hardest at the moment yeah that doesn't i don't think that really happens at the at the deepest ocean current level at all in that people don't really think about it, it it's something that's very gradually shaping us all and we're not really aware of it um although i think in the in the long run it if I'm, i comment on that for a moment i in some ways people don't notice it but they will and that'll be things like how do you build how do you build churches and how do you build even f- functioning societies in which people are living as much longer as they used to how do you live a functioning life in retirement if you're retired for more than a third of your life which is true of an increasing number of people in our society how do you fund it given aging populations and that you know the median age of europe is sort of going up and up and up and up and up and the median age of many other countries median age in africa at the moment is 19 and a half median age in europe is like 45 47 that sort of thing so you realize that disparity is that 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 raises the desire even for things like large levels of cultural immigration over the next 50 years in order to be able to provide enough young people to fund the old people but that's going to present all sorts of big cultural challenges so they're in many ways they're not the questions people ask but i wanted to throw them in anyway because i think the third level is actually that the deepest level is the ones that you don't even notice because they take much longer to kick in the most of the a lot of people ask about the top level but i think you can largely dismiss that's more like what's your comment on this what do you think about and some of them do feed through some of them clearly have a big impact you know donald trump is an example where I think, you know, in the long run, you go, oh, well, you know, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, that, you know, they're very different people. But it hasn't made that much difference, the experience of living in Britain other than probably Brexit. Whereas something like Trump, you'd go, that has actually done quite a lot to America and thereby to the world in raising the stakes on certain debates and issues and so on. But I think the main thing that comes up in training leaders is the middle tier is the things which people are smart enough to see this is a significant trend and things like technology and i think as i say the sexual revolution would be the one where and in some ways people trace it back to the late 1960s but i think we haven't actually seen a number of the fruits of the sexual revolution until the last 10 or 15 years particularly in the church so still i would say the biggest change since i started training since you and i would did you were an impact when i was in 2004 or whatever that's 15 or 16 years ago when we first met i guess and on that course, I probably covered sexual ethics a little bit. And even when I did, I might well have done it in the context of reproductive ethics rather than, you know, are people in this room genuinely going to need convincing that Christian marriage is between one man and one woman? Now, now you, although I know people on a leadership course are going to need to be taught, I will teach on that stuff. And I know that they will believe it. They need to be taught why it's good how it how it works what the sort of underlying anthropology of it is why it's theologically defensible as well as biblically proof text defensible how to articulate it in a church context how to articulate it in a secular context, in the media all kinds of things so i now spend a lot more time talking about something like that flipping it around i think when i started doing training i probably spent a lot more time talking about this new atheism was just on the was just becoming a thing 2005 6 the god delusion god is not great that's largely faded I, I just find those sorts of arguments the idea that religion is the cause of all violence that was a very post 9-11 phenomenon mm. that was iraq war that was you know george bush dick cheney and th- again that's how the top slice of culture feeds into the next one down where there has a t- been a tidal movement the tide has just gone out on the new atheism and now people don't worry about admitting they're christians because they think they're going to sound stupid probably as much as they think they're going to sound bigoted or morally reprehensible mm. And I think that's probably at an apologetic level or in, in terms of equipping the church or preaching or engaging in the, in the secular world. The concern is much more, I am a, I'm a backward bigot rather than I am a, an idiot who doesn't understand the way the world really works. It's not anti-science, it's anti-gay, it's, you know, whatever it might be. So I think that's probably the major trend when it comes to training and apologetics so that's that's fantastic to hear that i mean fantastic to hear. it's a brilliant that's overview great. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> um, um, i've forgotten where i was gonna what i was gonna say i think so the new atheist movement i fascinating i've not thought about that until you said it actually that i don't feel embarrassed on an intellectual level mm. anymore telling my non-christian friends yeah. i'm a christian and in part that's because 
I have, you know, um, undergirded my faith with some thinking and reading and listening about matters of science and faith. Yeah. So has the new atheism in large part gone away because Christians backfilled with, um, uh, you know, replies to those arguments? Or has it gone away because in the culture at large, people by and large just think, well, God doesn't exist. So we don't even need to argue about that anymore. No, I don't think it's the second at all. I, I think they might think the Christian God doesn't exist, or they might think the Christian God, if he does exist, doesn't have the, we can't really tell us what to do. But I certainly don't think, I don't think we are seeing a massive rise of cult, of, of atheism in a proper sense. I think this their culture is as uh, as spiritual, as likely to say they believe in God as it probably ever has been. I've been, as you know, for other reasons, been reading a lot of 18th century writings recently. And the state of Christianity in the nation is in many ways far better than it was in the 18th century in terms of people's belief in God and prepared to go by broadly Christian values on all, all manner of things, actually. Um, so I don't think I don't think it's that at all. I don't think people go, no, we know God doesn't exist. There are some I'm probably up to, you know, that, you know, the, we, the sociologists use the category of nuns, the people who just tick no religion or none on a box in the census. But of those nuns, which now comprise Again, this is North American, I think. They're about 25% of the population. There's actually a, a small subsection of that. It might be sort of somewhere between 5 and 10% who would say, I'm atheist. There is no God. That's how I'm done. The other 15, are, no, I, I might well be very spiritual. Many of them say, I pray every day. Many of them say, I believe in God or I believe in a spiritual thought. So I don't think it's that people have just suddenly changed their belief. I do think, though, that the uh, over the last, you know, this is a much lot, you know, sort of deeper level trend, but over the last two or 300 years, a lot fewer mm. people, obviously, 500 years, a lot fewer people mm. aren't going to church and mm. formally adhering to a traditional denomination. So, but when it comes to the new atheism, I think what's really happening there is that people, you know, Richard Dawkins, for all I know, may, the arguments he puts forward in the God delusion may well be the very reasons why he doesn't believe in God and why he always hasn't. But I suspect that what happens for most of his readers and sometimes for writers, is really that the way you defend your rejection of the Christian God is not necessarily the the overriding reason why you came to that belief. It is the most accessible and uh, consumer-friendly way of explaining why you don't like believing in God in a particular generational moment, which 15 years ago was 9-11, Al-Qaeda, George Bush, all the rest. Now, you say it's much easier to say, no, by virtue of being a Christian, you are a, a, a transphobe, a homophobe, a racist, or whatever it might be. And that's partly because of Trump and it's partly because of other things. And so, and that'll morph again. And in the 1980s, funny, I, I, you've got, a, um, I can't quite reach one from here, but I've got a number of books about shows that, you know, engaging in theological debate in the 80s and 90s. And they're all trying to push back against people who are taking the, the Jesus story, scholars and leading in American universities saying, Basically, we've got to get rid of the apocalyptic Jesus who believed in the end of the world because they're worried about Ronald Reagan and Star Wars and communism and this sort of good versus evil thing. And every so every generation does it. You say that's the, the battle we're going to fight. So I don't think the new atheism, in that sense, most of those people who were reading and quoting Richard Dawkins 15 years ago, they're still there and they still don't believe in God. It's just that's not the way they're going about it now. They've now either become woke warriors or anti-woke free speech warriors. And it's an interesting, I've read some interesting stuff even on how that movement has effectively split in half and the people who are a bit more, you know, progressive leaning have gone, we're going to become maybe take with the kind of people who are in downtown Portland at the moment, wearing black masks and shouting that everybody's a fascist. Or they might be the guys who have gone into the dark web and are saying, you guys are trying to crush, which of course is more the direction that Dawkins himself and Sam Harris have gone in. So Chris Hitchens has died. Daniel Dennett's still a professor. But, uh, but of those four guys, it's, it's fragmented even amongst them, let alone amongst the people who followed them. So I, th I don't think we're seeing everybody goes, oh, I don't care. I think what we're seeing is that social movements have redirected the energies of those people who are stridently anti the Christian God or anti any other God. And they mm. now articulate that agenda in very different ways. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, and that bears out in my experience as well. I think the amount of people I meet these days who I'm not having to convince them God exists. I'm having to convince them God has a name and yes. a will yeah. and is of a particular type. Yes, or God is good or yeah, or, or yeah. yeah. And that's what that's what I'm finding so fascinating is particularly you mentioned um, 
the the sexual revolution and the the changing attitude to to gay rights and trans rights that's where this rubber really hits the road is yeah. i want a god who who doesn't tell me unpopular things and lets me um have as much sexual freedom as i want um how do you i mean because it was it was in one sense easy easy i say to to see a solution to the problem when you're a christian and people think you're stupid with a bit of study and a bit you know a bit of articulation you can convince people i'm not stupid <laughs> however how do you make the christian vision of sexual flourishing uh, human flourishing sorry um how do you present that in a way that that kind of helps give the average christian confidence that we're not you know, transphobe, homophobe, and uh, we're not bigots because that does seem to be why a lot of Christians don't have confidence to say they're Christian anymore, uh, or they quickly slink out of any conversations that turn political or moral because we feel like we've lost the moral, any moral high ground. I think Mark Sayers says for the first time in Christian history, we're now considered less moral than the um, than the, the society around us in our attitude towards things like that. What would be your encouragement to? To Christians who are asking those kind of questions. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I I don't. Co- I actually don't agree with Mark about that particular point. I think that there. I think he is right that in our culture, we Christians had have had the moral high ground for a long time. But I think if you go back to the second century church, before the before really the the merger of church and state in the fourth century, I think you would say Christians are regarded as morally reprehensible people, uh, just for the opposite reasons that we would now. Christians are regarded as stupid and and yeah morally depraved people. And Tacitus said it about the reason about Nero setting Christians on fire in in the in Paul's day. You know, so saying this these guys were just like they were the hatred of the human race. They were despised, a, a, a terrible group of people. They were, as you know, accused later of incest for Christian marriage and of cannibalism for eating the raw supper. There was all kinds of things and and of being this depraved superstition of women and slaves and children, which of course now, because of Christianity, those things are all held up as being good things. If you're you know attractive to women and slaves and children, people would say, Oh, well done you. But back then that was regarded as degraded. So I actually don't think it's true. Um, but I accept the broader point that in our culture we're having to get used to being on the morally wrong side of the argument again. And I think we're actually back where the church was a very long time ago. And I mean, I think it. I think you've got to read. You've got to read your own um, position and uh, relationships, and your own capacity for engaging in this sort of thing, haven't you? I think there are people who need to do this sort of thing very thoroughly. A bit like with new atheism, actually. Uh, Fifteen years ago, there would have been people who'd say, "Oh, this person's into Dawkins. I'm just going to drop it. I don't know enough about evolutionary biology to go into that on this one." And I think there will be many people for whom that's to some degree. And with many people they know, if people are picking a fight, that's actually appropriate. Of course, if your your mum or your brother or someone is really going at you about something, you may well need to give more of a response than that. But a lot of the time, some of us will just need to, you know, do what Jeremiah does when confronted with the false prophet Hananiah and just shrugs and walks away and goes, I, I, I'm not going to win this one now. I'm just going to give it time. And I think that's OK for many of us a lot of the time. I don't think I, I can do that. I don't think you can do that as a pastor and a trainer. But I think Many of us probably should some of the time. But when it comes to articulating a Christian vision of sexuality and you know, moral goodness, I think you have to ask different questions about, let's, if you take sex, I think you have to ask different questions about sex than we're used to asking. I think even in my teenage years, or probably 20, early 20s, the questions that were asked about sex were things to do with who, who you're going to have sex with, and when. And maybe even like how, but those would be the questions. If you're trying to teach people about sex, that's where you'd go. I think now the question is much deeper than that, and it's basically what is sex and what's it for, what and why has God made it this way? And I think often when you ask that of people, they don't really know, or their functional answer to what sex is is something like, you know, it's a, I often often crack this, but it's like. It's a, a pleasurable consenting experience between two adults. It might as well be tandem skydiving just without clothes on. It's like it doesn't have any meaning. It doesn't point beyond itself, except it's simply that something does to, someone does to get a physical rush of some sort and they get some endorphins and they all go, now I feel a bit nicer. It's like a drug transaction in that sense. It's a way of triggering your hormones or your organs to do something. And at the end of that, you're done. Now, that's a very low, cheap 
an unsatisfactory view of sex, which completely destroys not just the divine transcendence of it, but even the, the, from a completely secular person, the sense of mystery and withholding yourself for one other person and intimacy and closeness. And of course, it doesn't really work because as soon as you say to people, if you actually consistently said this is just a, a way of having a physical experience, then issues like sexual violence wouldn't have anything like the hold on us that they rightly do as morally dramatically serious issues because you'd say well in the end it's really an issue of physical pain caused or permanent harm done and if you haven't done that then what's the problem with it and of course we all say what are you talking about sex means far more than that so there is a there's a a transcendence and a significance to human sexuality that's much larger and when you start talking about why and saying what is it that it does and you say, well, actually, within the Christian vision of human flourishing, sexuality points beyond itself. It points to the mystery of Christ and the church. It points to the mystery of heaven and earth and creation. It points to the mystery of worshipping God and union with God. And I'm not surprised that given that you don't think it means those things, you don't really understand why I would constrain it the way I do. I get that. But could you see, though, that the reason that given that I do think it does mean those things means, of course, I'm going to think that it's going to be constrained in ways that you might not. And that it isn't only an issue of consent, but actually there are other things going on here. There is union and communion and otherness and fidelity and permanence and covenant and things like these are transcendence, actually, which I think if you think hard about it, you might realize you also share some of them as well, even if in a slightly diluted form, because your assumptions about what sex is are, have been Christianized, whether you like it or not, by the last 2000 years of Christian ethical teaching. So now... People will express that case at different levels of depth, and but I, I and some will be will avoid it altogether. But I think that underneath the questions about no, you're not allowed to do this, and they're not allowed to do that, and what should the law be, and who gets to marry who, the story I've often told, you've heard me tell it several times, I'm sure, is that when these two just after um, gay marriage was um, kind of gay marriage was obviously going to become legal, it was about 2014, 2015, that sort of time. I bumped into two young teenagers in two teenage girls in our welcome area at church. And I said, how do you find the service? We were chatting. And they said, look, the thing for me about Christianity is I just don't understand why you think that two people who love each other can't get married. And I said, why two? Why not three? Why not five? Why not eight? Why can't I be married to, you know, my wife and she's married to her sister and I'm married to the dog or whatever. Where's that come from? And they were, they didn't really know what to say. They hadn't thought about it. And it was partly because they didn't realize how they also carry all kinds of unprovable assumptions about what human sexuality is. And I think I'm just saying, I think my vision of that is just way, way older, way more widely shared in the world's population even now, and way more defensible theologically than yours. Although I understand you may not have thought about it. Yeah, because I do think that the, I, I do think that the, the reason people object to the Christian position isn't in large part about sex, it is about love, or at least that's how the that's how the argument's been framed. Love is yeah. love. And um, and so people aren't saying I should be allowed to have sex with whoever I want. They are, but they are saying I should be allowed to love whoever I want and form a close and intimate bond with whoever I want. Yeah. And you Christians are stopping me do that. And you think no, and of course, I, of course I, that's what I don't, precisely what I don't think I am stopping. I'm saying, of course I think you should. I actually think this is where the church has often got this wrong. So, the church has often shied away from uh, the idea that you should be able to have a close and intimate relational bond with somebody of the same sex as you. I mean, not in, in historically that hasn't been true, but more recently I think it has. There's an awful lot of Christians who read accounts of friendship between men even 60 or 70 years ago in war and find it a little bit, ooh, that sounds a bit gay. They think, no, no, relational intent, intensity of love for other human beings, closeness of affection where two women who are lifelong friends can live in the same house for the rest of their lives and love one another deeply without having anything sexual to it has always been part of human. In fact, that's Christian traditions around monasteries and convents, let alone men at war and so on. So that I've, that's not what I'm, I'm not talking about that at all. If, if somebody by love is love means I should be able to love anybody I want and say, well, I think that's actually just the second commandment. I think that's a bit Jesus, or Jesus saying, you know, love God, love your neighbor. We're not, but that isn't all you're saying. You're saying, I want that love to be expressed sexually if I choose to. And that's where I do think the debate is actually about sex rather than about love. Um, and I think one of the things we have to do pastorally as in the church is to help particularly those who are attracted to people of the same sex, but actually everybody form better loving friendships that are thoroughly unsexualized 
And it's just our culture is so effective at catechizing us on, you know, everything is sexual. Every time you look at something like that, it is basically sexual. Of course, if you give somebody a hug, it's a bit gay. All those sorts of things. He's got so good at doing that, even in, in a humorous way, let alone a serious one, that we have to sort of anti-catechize in that sense to teach people no. Mm. If, if you, whether you are gay or straight, you the way in which your friendship should work should be characterized probably more intimacy, not less. It's just it mustn't be sexualized. Mm. Is that attitude towards sexuality something that is a uh, something that's downstream from people like Freud, who essentially said we are sexual creatures who want to devour? Totally. And so our society. So you're saying that pre pre Freud, people didn't think like that about sexuality and or, or human meaning and purpose as being fundamentally sexual. Yeah, I mean, I think some people did before Freud, and some people don't after him. And of course, you know, but but uh, yeah, I, do, I would I would say that in in the sort of intellectual history, there's a there's quite a a turning point really around the end of the nineteenth, start of the twentieth century, where psychology effectively big even, even nowadays you you study psychology at even university, did you? No, no I you didn't. didn't. My I wife did. did. I I just studied it for okay. fun. Okay, but it's. I mean, in that case, she would know much better than I. But this, an awful lot of people today would just—they would reject almost every single testable claim that Freud made. But they would still operate with a deeper assumption that what fundamentally defines a person's identity is bound up with their sexual drives. And that's true even for people who say, "Oh no, the different phases he thought children went through—that's all absolutely hooey." But I still think there's something. I still assume that there is something right about that way of processing what a human being is. And so I wouldn't want to make him like a sort of, until then it was this before Freud and after Freud. But I, but yeah, there has definitely been a huge transition in the last hundred years, which is why people's essential sense of self is so bound up with their sexuality now. And some of that is bound, is also connected to the, you know, institutional religion having a, a weaker hold on people. So whereas if I said to you, who are you in the 16th century? you might say, I'm a Protestant, or I'm an Anglican, or I'm a Catholic. And then you might say, I'm English, and you might say, whatever it might be. There would be different ways of ranking it. When people talk about that now, national identity is still there, but it's lower down the list. Religious identity is, for many people, all but gone. Even if they do believe in God, they don't identify themselves that way. And their sexual identity or other forms, like their, you know, their, their gender identity, which is obviously a, a different thing, and or their racial identity might be uppermost in that list. And so people, it's not uncommon for somebody to say, to start, introduce themselves almost by saying, as a gay man or as a trans woman, or that's how they primarily think about who they are. That's a relative, that's a very recent development. That just isn't how people, there was a lot of gay sex in the ancient world, right? Paul is, you see it in the Greek writers, you see it in Latin writers, and you see it in Paul. But that's not how they thought about who they were as humans. Whereas I think with the erosion of other meta identities like religious affiliation or whatever, you you find and even tribal identities, which have been very strong for most people, with those things fade, you you have you find a new tribe, you find a new home, a new way of saying, Oh, that's who I am, and this group of people is the people with whom I fit, and that's the gay community or the trans community or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's why the stakes are so high, because it sounds like it's a bit like in the 16th century, if you, acute, if you disagree with someone on Protestantism, you end up trying to drown each other because their Protestantism was the defining feature of who they were. That's no longer true, but instead it's their sexual identity is the defining feature, which is why it feels like such an assault on their sense of self if you say, I don't think you can have sex with someone of the same sex as you. <laughs> wow, that's really helpful. Such a helpful way of putting things and even framing it in that just a wider historical context because part of the challenge we've got is we're all so... We've, I remember John Piper using the phrase of being sucked into the abyss of the present. You know, we're just yeah. so consumed yeah. with a present mindset that we cannot imagine what it was like to think and live before the 19th century, for example. But uh, I read recently Viktor Frankl's experience of the... He was a Jewish Holocaust survivor and psychologist and therapist. And he... I don't know if he developed it, but he talks about um, a form of understanding human persons that is in direct um, opposition or contrast to Freud. He says, we're not fundamentally um, sexual beings, we're fundamentally meaning-making beings, and we need meaning and purpose. And so that's where, although I think there is still this sense that people, like you said rightly, that people want to have sex with whoever they want, at a deeper level, because meaning and community, like I think Jonathan hates stuff stuff about um, being um, essentially community beings, or um, what's the phrase that he's got? I can't remember. But I think um, that's deeper, it seems, than, than sexuality. 
and and so people would still be saying no but i i want to have meaning and purpose in life and that is bound up in close and intimate relationships with another person and so by outlawing marriage to uh, to gay people for example you are stopping them being able to have the kind of close partnership that heterosexual people seem to be able to enjoy, which is a big part of their meaning for life. You know, the concerns after are that when my loved one dies, if we're not legally joined, then uh, I don't get anything and it's as though we never existed. And that's that's a tragedy because we've built everything. We've made a life. We've made something meaningful together. So there is seem to be the not just the longing for sex and love, but for a deeper level for meaning and purpose to their life. Um, do, do those statements ring true? Do, what would you say to things like I that? They, they all they all do. Um, again, I think if if but if people said I'm going to do that, I'm going to do all of those things. I'm just going to do it celibately. I'd say knock yourself out. Right? That's that's exactly what human friendship should be. So I think what happens is people say the things you're saying. And will and almost explicitly say no. This isn't about sex. You know, it's so much bigger than that. They say, okay, well, if we what if we just said no? We took sex out. So this is not. And I don't just mean we took away sexual intercourse. I mean we don't sexualize this relationship. That's not how we think about what was happening here. That actually there, of course, is a a much much better pedigree of relational language for this in human history than gay married couple or gay lover, which is that of brother or sister. And that's that's something that all societies everywhere, and we of course still do, but all societies have used as a way of describing the kind of even you know, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, that that sort of biblical language, but even just the idea that people do talk about brothers in arms or band of brothers or whatever, that has always been the, I'm using male language, but it just applies to sisters as well. And as we and when you use terms like that, I think what it exposes is if I was to take sex out of this picture, you would feel like something probably something fundamental had been stolen from what you see this relationship as being which is why i do think it's ultimately about sexuality and the transcendence of the, of, of sex in our culture rather than simply a, if, if but if i took sex away and you said that's great that's exactly what i want and i say well in that case you know great but i don't think you're really talking about gay marriage then i think you're talking about a deep intimacy of fraternal friendship that is a beautiful thing with an incredibly long history that jesus himself in, lived in and John the Baptist and Paul and many, many others of our heroes of the faith, both in scripture and since. And you should not only can you pursue that, you should. So I, that's why I do think it still does come down to an issue of, uh, I do think that sex is still a big part of this puzzle, even if I think people would want to say that's not the main reason. Um, I think probably in practical terms, there is a there's some middle ground in the middle, which is people who say, middle ground in the middle, where else would the middle ground be? I ask myself. But it's where people are not only, they're saying, no, it's not just about sex, but nor do I just want the brother thing. I want a phrase you often hear. I want someone to come home to at the end of the day. And I think in an environment like that, we can still affirm what I've just been saying, but need to additionally recognize that the uh, the model of society that has you know lots and lots of tiny nuclear family units makes life much more alienating for those people who are not in those tiny family units, particularly in the church. And that the work that has to be done in the church, which I imagine is part of what we're talking about, is not only to comment on the social trend, but actually to build church family in such a way that a person who is not in a nuclear family might live in a flat with somebody else who might live on their own or a house on their own, a very big house on their own, but they're still, they don't live as defined by relationships with wife and three kids or whatever it might be, mm. that the family of God functions in such a way that that person is not le- either left out or regarded in any way as a second-class citizen and wouldn't regard themselves that way for not being in a smaller family unit. And I think the fact that our culture has, the, the extended family's got, this is a, a sort of uh, ocean current level development, isn't it? The extended family yeah. has gradually uh, collapsed and lost its meaning for people. It's not a place that they go in the in in white middle class communities like the ones we're much talking about. Not everywhere, but I think because that's gone, then then it's very difficult for people to find that sort of larger network of relationships without sort of thinking I need to be married to somebody mm. because that is what society has preached them to believe, not least in and through the church. So. I do have a lot of sympathy. At a sociological level, I'm commenting and saying, this is why I think it's really about sex. But at an individual level with gay friends of mine, I'm going, I totally see why that's like that and why the appeal is so strong. 
I, I still think a lot of it is about sex. Mm. But if it's only about the other thing, I think we need to find ways of building families and living arrangements even that don't force us into that binary of I'm either married to somebody or I'm on my own, mm. which is not a biblical way of thinking at all. No, because I was, I was thinking when you shared earlier about the early church's challenge of being uh, ostracized and hated and seen as being immoral in a society in the ancient world, that, that was very difficult. And like you're rightly pointing out, comparable to our situation with regards to that issue. But what the early church had was social structure and social glue and communities that held them together. And I think probably one of the, the, the biggest impacts of the sexual revolution that has led to this conversation is the disintegration and destabilization of the family and community life. Um, to the point where uh, I read a statistic the other day that said um, 50% of children growing up in this country by the age of their 16th birthday won't be living with either of their birth parents um, or one or either of their birth parents. That's shocking and that has huge ramifications for a society. And we're now, you know, people talk about there are many different types of family, um, which seems to me to be another way of just accepting broken family as normal now and that of course makes it a lot harder for us as christians to do that so just as we come into to land i'd love to i mean i didn't anticipate us necessarily spending the whole time talking about um sexuality but i think it's a really helpful observation that um it, 10 15 years ago it was the neo-atheists and uh, that was the main issue for christian confidence and now it seems to be uh, homophobia and things issues like this so it's been really helpful to have that conversation what would you say then to, to someone who is in a church and what can they do to help cultivate deeper social bonds and communities of love and intimacy that help make singleness and celibacy not just plausible but desirable again? Well, so we, this is not the only answer, but it's one I just I'd throw out because it might not be the first thing you'd often hear. I think all of us need to think seriously about our living arrangements i mean and by this i mean i mean i mean you know i've got you know as you know married three children dog right the house is it's not full we've got a nice nice house but it you know there's plenty of people in it or plenty of living beings in it already uh, our dog is larger than our children and uh but i think all of us like need to return and say okay this this bubble that i'm in is this actually the best way of cultivating family in this season of my life? And what we've done, I, I did this a couple of years ago. It would be slightly out of out of date now. But when I, did, I hosted a conference, which I know you were at, and where we where I just threw this challenge out there in the context of a discussion about sexuality and just said, you know, at, at the time of speaking, it was about, we'd been married 15 years and we'd spent about half of it with at least one other person living with us and half of it not. And I, I, so I'm not saying this is a rule that all families must have a single person living with them. But I think if people are not asking that question, certainly if we've got, as most of us do, the space to get two of our kids to share a room or whatever it might be and free up a room, which many of us listening to this probably would by the time they're the age that you and I are and probably a fair bit younger, then if we're not asking the question, then something's gone a bit awry because we're really saying that and I'm this is mine. That, that's my space and it's no one else's. And I think the same is true of single people as well. And I've thrown this challenge the other way and said, if you go buy a flat on your own, I just think you should very seriously consider whether that is actually the most helpful thing for you and for those in the community around you for your long term flourishing and happiness. Not to say it isn't, it might well be. There might be kind of good reasons why that's important. Or it might be a seasonal thing where sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But I think we need to put that on the table because in the end, a home is such a key part of how we express the non-functional areas of human life, isn't it? I can have transactional friendships and relationships with people, and even what we're doing now, you and I are good friends, but we're speaking in in work time with our earphones in over a screen. It's very fun. The, the friendship that you and I have comes from when our, our kids are around and we go for a walk in the woods or when we come around and hang out at yours in the evening or whatever. Obviously, you know, by the rule of six. Um, but it's... <laughs> The point is that's where the that's where intimacy happens much of the time is in non-transactional moments, and I think it people can smell it. Like if you say, "Well, no, of course we're going to include, but we're going to do it on our schedule in the bits of the day or week when it works for us as an appointment rather than as part of our family life," then I think that's always going to subtly communicate you are not truly part of us. And I think both families and single people. 
both old and young have a lot to gain from just revisiting that question. So rather than giving you five things, I'd give you one thing and just spend a bit more time on it to try and push the point. There are many others as well, I'm sure, but that would be where I'd start. That's really helpful. And I can see how at a deeper culture level, you mentioned the the future problem that we're going to have a society of people living a third of their life potentially in retiredville, uh, in retirement age. Yeah. The responsibility and need perhaps for those of retirement age to not stop thinking of themselves as mothers and fathers and older brothers and older sisters. Because I, I see that so much, particularly among people in pastoral ministry, the longing to be fathered and mothered by someone. Um, and because they've moved away, because of social migration, they've moved away from their family they grew up with, their mums and dads don't live with them. There's still that craving and that aching in the heart to have a, an older person look at them and say, I must decrease and you must increase. And that is yeah. the sorts of thing that I think people are longing to hear that helps with that sort of thing too. Uh, Andrew, oh, it's been so rich and so helpful and I would love to just keep talking to you for hours on end about all sorts of things. Please come back in the future and um, help us tease open and think through uh, another issue that's facing us as well so thank you so much for your time it's lovely to be with you and breathe (laughs) we covered a lot of ground there and stirred up no doubt some major controversy and topics of discussion I hope you enjoyed it. I especially enjoyed and appreciate Andrew's observation that our sexuality has become a much larger part of our identity than it perhaps used to be. And that it is in some ways comparable to how people living in, say, Western Europe in the 16th or 17th century used to think about their Protestantism or Catholicism. That was a juicy thought right there. Well, in a few weeks time, friends, I'm going to be talking more about sexuality and gender. So remember to come back if that's something that you're interested in thinking further about. But Andrew touched on something toward the end of our time together that I'm pleased to say we're going to go into in more detail with our next guest. I'm going to be interviewing David Holden, the apostolic founding father of the New Ground family of churches that gives you and brings us New Ground's Life and Leadership podcast. I'm looking forward to that conversation where we're going to be talking more about the whole significance and importance of mentoring and being a spiritual father or mother to someone. Here's a little clip from that episode. For me, there's nothing like modeling something for somebody that's been modeled to you and I don't know quite how I feel very grateful to God almost from the moment I became a Christian I could rattle off actually quite a few people that I looked up to and some of them mentored me knowingly and some of them just did it unknowingly it was just by kind of being with them and uh, so over the years there have been numerous people I can hardly remember a time right up to today actually, when I'm not still looking to people to have a fathering role. Now I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, but that principle still doesn't kind of go away. Well, it should be a good one. I hope you enjoy it. Now until next time, thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying the show so far, please don't forget to like, subscribe or share with anyone that you think would benefit from the content that we're putting out. If you want to get in contact with me for whatever reason, if you have a guest or topic suggestion, or you just want to say hi, you can email me at podcast at newgroundchurches.org. Otherwise, God bless you. And I'm looking forward to our next conversation. See you soon.